Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Welcome to another episode of the Recruitment Flex. I'm Serge, joined by my favorite co-host, Shelly Billinghurst. How's it going, Shelly? Oh, that's so nice. I'm actually your favorite. Today, you're my favorite. Oh, gee, thanks. Gee, thanks. That just warms my heart. So I have the pleasure of introducing our guest today. I'm very pleased to introduce Stephen Rothberg, who's the founder and chief visionary officer with College Recruiter. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Shelly. You're most welcome. So for our audience, let's start with who is Steve Rothberg? You don't need to go back to where you were born, but I think our listeners may find it interesting (laughs) where you're from and where you are today. Sure. I was born in Winnipeg. I am Canadian and I'm also American. I moved from Winnipeg to Minneapolis, Minnesota years ago. It was like 187 years ago. I think it might've been Lincoln. It might've been Andrew Jackson was president. I'm not sure which, but I moved here for grad school. And then I was one of those fortunate people to win a U.S. green card in the lottery program. So I got to stay. Wow. And so where are you now? Minneapolis. I like to joke that I'm the only person in history who ever moved to Minnesota for the weather. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about your journey then in starting College Recruiter. Anybody who says that they had this master plan for their life or even for the next five years is... insane or a liar or both. So the very early origin was I was in my fourth year or for the Americans in the audience, a senior in college at at the University of Manitoba. And I was in a small business program and started this tiny little micro business where I published a map of the University of Manitoba campus, sold the ads around the borders. The university gave them away for free, had a lot of fun, made really good money, And then a couple of friends of mine took that over and I went to grad school in Minneapolis. Flash forward a few years, I had graduated. I was a lawyer working for a couple of judges and I could see that my friends who were doing uh, the kind of legal work that that I was about to go to after the clerkship were just absolutely freaking miserable. The work was great. The money was better, um, but all they did was work. And there was no light at the end of the tunnel. They were working 80, 90, 100 hours a week. And my intent when I went to to law school was to get out after probably five years and start my own small business um, or join somebody else's. So I resurrected the business in Minneapolis. This is the fall of 91. And I was publishing campus maps for a few different universities and metro areas. We decided to diversify the, the product mix and added an employment magazine. The employment magazine had ads in it from employers that were looking to hire college students. After about a year, it grew from being just at the University of of Minnesota, which is where I went to school, to over 200 schools nationwide. And then literally in 96, stepped into one of the career service offices at the University of Minnesota. And the career service office director said to me that there's this thing called the internet and she said oh, that, no, that she didn't know she didn't know what it was or how to use it, but she's heard from some of her students that when they're preparing for on-campus interviews, when they come into the career service office to pull the file cabinet open to look for the annual report from Arthur Anderson or whatever, 
that it was missing because somebody else who was interviewing with Arthur Anderson had stolen the materials to give them an advantage. Students were using the internet to try to find information on employers so they would know before they stepped into the interview with a recruiter what the heck Arthur Anderson was. So she said, we should create a website. We did. We had a high school kid that worked for us part-time, created our website for $3,000. And that was 1996. And then it became a business, if you will, more than just a brochure. About two weeks later, we got a call to our office from a financial services guy in Texas Mm-hmm. And he said, I found you on Yahoo. There wasn't Google yet. I found you on Yahoo. How do I run an ad on your site? And we were like, good question. We had just taken the ads from the magazine, scanned them, posted them to the website and basically said, enjoy. So we went through the pricing with him for the magazines and he's, oh, okay. Can I give you a credit card? If you ever have a customer who's trying to give you money, yes. you always <laughs> want to try to find a way of accepting it. Just take it. Yeah. And so, okay, sure. And a business was born. So within a couple of years, we got rid of the maps. Within a couple of years, we got rid of the magazines. And since 2000, we've strictly been online. So College Recruiter is a job search site for students and recent grads. We help over 3 million of them find great new jobs a year. Who's your target client? Who are you targeting? Yeah. So on the client um, side, or we call them customers, but same shit, different pile. The Target audience for us on the sort of the employer side, they are Fortune 1000 companies, okay. government agencies, and other employers that hire at scale. And what we mean by scale is dozens, maybe hundreds into the same or similar role per year. The reason for that is the vast majority of college and university students are hired and employed by large organizations. The conventional wisdom is that most people work for small businesses. It's not true. Most people get hired by small businesses, but they also leave those jobs much faster than if they work for large businesses. So large businesses actually employ the bulk of the U.S. workforce. Perfect. Stephen, one of the things that we're hearing a lot about is companies talking about the requirements for college or university degrees when it comes to roles Mm -hmm. like sales, customer service. What's your overall take on this? Do you feel this should be a requirement for a lot of these roles? Yeah, I'm a listener of your of your podcast. And I think maybe three episodes ago, I remember there was a somewhat similar conversation. And Shelly said something like, we really need to dig into this in a future episode. What she was also saying that she, my word, not hers, despises the fact that so many jobs out there require college or university degrees. If you want to be a nurse, if you want to be a physician, if you want to be an engineer, there's a licensure requirement. And we can quibble about whether there should be a licensure requirement But if you want to be an engineer, you have to have an engineering degree. I get that. That makes sense to me. But if you want to sell cars, if you want to be a customer service manager, don't you tell me that person needs to have a college or university degree. Now, there may be loads of college and university students who are going to really excel in that role. But if I was thinking of hiring somebody to be a project manager, I think I would trust the skill set of somebody who had been a sergeant in the military for four years than somebody who had graduated with a bachelor's degree in four years. It doesn't make a lot of sense for somebody who founded a job search site for college and university students, but our orientation is consistent with our mantra. Um, Our mantra is that we believe that every student and recent graduate deserves a great career. So if you've got a vocational degree, if you've Mm -hmm. got a community college degree, if you've got a four-year degree from MIT, 
awesome. And I definitely feel like education is always a good thing. These people who say, oh, you know, if college is too expensive, don't go to college. Those people almost always have master's degrees or higher, as do their kids. Mm-hmm. And it's really easy to tell somebody from a impoverished neighborhood that they should stay in poverty while your kids are prospering. So I think it's a lot of BS when people say don't get a college degree because they aren't walking that walk. But at the same time, the employers that are the most successful are the ones that are looking for people based upon productivity, not based upon words on their resume. So that brings up a really excellent point, Stephen, because I have this discussion with clients and heading up campus recruitment for a couple of major organizations in the past, because the fixation is always on GPA, Mm -hmm. a top GPA 3.8 or higher is a wonderful accomplishment. And boy, you got to work really hard, but hiring based on GPA. I've always found that you really need to dig underneath and look for evidence of, is this really what they want to do? Are they truly interested in the work? But unfortunately, if companies require that you list your GPA and that's how they're going to decide, my opinion is that stupid. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, all you're doing is you cannot be bothered to put any more effort into your recruitment advertising. It just send me everybody list their GPA and anybody with over 3.8 gets an interview. Can you speak to that a bit, Stephen? What do you, what do you see from employers? Yeah, you and I are um, completely aligned on that. The use of GPA was definitely something that I was in favor of when I was a student because my GPA was pretty good. I had a really high GPA coming out of high school. I had a really high GPA coming out of undergrad. And so at the time, naturally, I was thinking GPA really means a lot. And I I agree. It typically means that you are a hard worker. It typically means that you're bright. And it typically means nothing as far as your product once you're in the workforce. So two two things. One, a, a short story that I think might really help the listeners. There was a study probably five, six, seven years ago that Ernst & Young did in the UK, where they studied the productivity in their workforce, students that they had hired from certain schools, certain majors, certain GPAs. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that not only was there a poor correlation between school major and GPA, there was a negative correlation. In other words, the better the school you went to, the better the perception of the school you went to, the Mm -hmm. more aligned your major was with Ernst & Young, accounting, finance, economics, and the higher your GPA. The worse was your productivity after you joined Ernst & Young, which made absolutely no sense to me until they explained how they measured it. So one way they measure that is tenure. The students that went to the best schools, best majors, that had the best GPAs left the soonest. Mm. They were gone after a year. So if you have to invest time, money, sweat, whatever, into training your staff, and who doesn't? Some do it more, some do it less, but we all do it to an extent. You'd always want to have people with you for longer than shorter. And if you're with Ernst & Young for a year versus somebody else who's been there for five years, guess who's going to be more productive? 
that's the epiphany that they had. Now, somewhat related to that is diversity. And I know that Jackie Clayton has written a lot about this really well, but the use of GPA by employers, at least in the US, I suspect the same as in Canada, Mm -hmm. is inversely related to your diversity efforts. The more you emphasize, the harder it is for you to attract a diverse workforce. And one of the reasons for that is that candidates who are, say, people of color or women in engineering, they face a tougher road. It's harder for them to get into the programs. When they're in the programs, there's a lot of explicit and implicit bias that make it harder for them. And they tend to have lower GPAs. But again, the reality is they tend to be more productive. So I think most people can agree that the more diverse a workforce is, the more productive that workforce is. Mm -hmm. If you want to have a productive workforce, you want to increase your diversity. And that means you want to de-emphasize and maybe even ignore GPA. We've seen from employers that use College Recruiter an incredible shift in the last year, somewhat over the last five years. It used to be very standard, very non-controversial. We need these candidates to have a 3.5 GPA or higher, blah, blah, blah. And now we rarely see that. Where we see that now is almost exclusively with small and medium-sized businesses. Virtually all of the large businesses have come to understand that is not a valid hiring criteria. So why are small business still having that issue? Ignorance. Okay. It's not that they're ignorant people, meaning no. that they're not stupid. It's a lack of knowledge. And that was going to be my question. So thanks. You beat me to it, Serge. Always um, beating you to it. <laughs> I, that was going to be my question because my assumption would be that they're taking note of what was happening five years ago, and they may only hire one or two new grads a year. It's yeah. very different than someone who's hiring hundreds. So they would be outdated. They're still thinking that Monster is a great job board. And and again, it's not that they're stupid. You probably see this every day with your clients, Shelly. So you're the HR person for a 50-person company. Yeah. Today, your primary concern, quite literally, is breaking up the fight in the lunchroom. It's not about reading scholarly articles about the impact of GPA on diversity. Mm -hmm. The truth of that is having to explain to an employee why he's being terminated because we caught him on video peeing against the building. Would that be the inside or the outside of the building? Does one give him a warning and terminated? Just asking for a friend. True story. <laughs> I do want to deep dive on the challenge there is right now for companies to get to the students that are on campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Tim Sackett had a great article about this not too long ago. LinkedIn had the opportunity to take a huge market share as far as the ability mm-hmm. for employers to find those students, but they really haven't focused on it. There's just information everywhere. Career mm-hmm. services is really limiting the ability to do anything different than just job fairs. And if you've listened to our episodes, you know how we feel about job fairs. So (laughs) how can college and campus recruitment evolve? Yeah, I read and commented on Tim's article. Tim did a great job of laying out the frustrations of the employer Mm -hmm. that infrequently 
are trying to hire students or recent grads. For the benefit of the readers, basically, he was trying to hire some salespeople for his staffing company and just kept hitting brick wall after brick wall. But that said, I disagreed with most of what he wrote. It's not that the problems were made up or that the problems weren't significant, but there were relatively easy solutions to each of the problems that he outlined. One thing that I saw and from Tim's article, and I thought he did a good reflection of what a lot of small businesses encounter. And it's a big frustration with on-campus recruiting, where you actually physically go to school, you go into the library or whatever, and you sit in a what used to be a, a broom closet, and you meet with 12 people who are all basically the same, and then you're going to somehow make a decision about who you're going to hire and who you aren't. It's an incredibly arbitrary, stupid process. But what Tim pointed out in the article is that small employers do not have the resources to develop a relationship with the career service office. So his frustration was basically he was unable to call up the local career service offices and get interviews scheduled days and times of his choosing with the students that he wanted to meet with just by making a phone call. And, and, and I get that frustration. It's a real problem. On the other hand, the solution to that is pretty simple. Develop a relationship with the career service office. Call up the professor and say, hey, I run a staffing company. How about if I guest lecture at some of your upcoming classes to the candidates who are taking sales major or who are in marketing or whatever your profile is? So you could spend literally hours building those relationships and then the career service office, the professors or whatever would pave that path for you. He also did a good job of explaining how frustrating some of the career service office management platforms can be. He, he was specifically mentioning Handshake. So for readers who don't know, Handshake is a billion dollar company. I think it was created five years ago. They've grown incredibly, raised a ton of money, executed incredibly well. Something like 95% of college and university students in the U.S. go to schools that use Handshake. And Handshake basically does, if you go to the Career Service Office website and run a job search or sign up for interviews or go to an online career fair, that's Handshake. And it often has the look and feel of the Career Service Office, not Handshake. It's a job board for a lot of the college career service offices. So Tim wanted to post a job to Handshake. There's no cost to it, the basic service. But each career service office then needs to review that job posting and decide whether they want to make that posting available to their students. So it's not Handshake that's making that decision, it's the schools. And the schools are literally getting thousands of postings a day. And a typical career service office has one, two, maybe three paid people. It takes about 20 hours of staff time a day to go through a thousand postings. They just simply don't have the time. So a tool that Handshake brought in at the request of their clients, the career service offices, was a rating system, a trust score. Mm -hmm. So if the school has worked with you before, if you've posted jobs to Handshake before, whatever, you're more trusted. Now, that was frustrating to Tim because he, hadn't, he didn't have any trust. They didn't know him. Now, mm -hmm. Tim is absolutely 100% legitimate, as is his company, as are the opportunities. But there's no way the software knows that. Yeah. The software only knows what, what goes into the software. Tim and his mm -hmm. company 
company haven't given Handshake software enough information for them to give him a good trust score so that the schools can go and, and just quickly say, oh, anybody who has a high trust score just to prove their postings. So again, the solution there is to invest the time needed mm-hmm. to build your trust score. And if you're unable or unwilling to invest a few hours, then from my perspective, that's a red flag for how much time you're going to be able or willing to invest to train those employees. It's a little bit of pointing the finger. And I think the frustrations were really valid, but I don't think that he looked hard enough for the solutions. Wow. Okay. There's a lot to unpack. Steve, thank you. And I get it as well, because I've also worked for a billion dollar corporation. The new grad hiring that we did was like six. Mm -hmm. And there were schools that were just like six. You're not worth my time. Yeah. Because we've got companies that need to hire like 50 or a hundred of our new grads. And they've been talking to us all year. So Stephen, for job fairs, it is the way that these major corporations continue to give back to the campus. My sense has always been that an on-campus career fair, students hate it, other than maybe there's free food there. All they say is apply on the website. Yep. But the reason they're there is because it costs them money and they have to give that money to the university. And yeah. having their brand presence associated with the university is the trade-off. Ernst & Young, KPMG, Royal Bank of Canada, their brand is associated with that university. Do I right. have that right? You do. And just to add to that, not at all to, to contradict it, but to add to that, from the perspective of the career service office, it's logical. It's rational. What they're doing is that they're saying, if you as an employer pay us at least hundreds, often thousands of dollars to attend our career fairs, that funds our operations. That's where they get the bulk of their money from. And so if you don't pay us money through the career fair, we don't exist. And if we don't exist, we can't help you find the students. Now, I think it's reprehensible that universities require their career service offices to operate as sort of for-profit offices. Exactly, yeah. So your English department does Mm -hmm. not operate as a for-profit. Athletics, other than a few men's athletic sports, Mm -hmm. they don't operate on a for-profit basis. Food services does, career services does. It doesn't make any sense to me that A school that charges you tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars will then deliberately undermine your ability to find a great job upon graduation when clearly they know that if you find a great job upon graduation that then leads you into a life of hopefully prosperity, Mm -hmm. you are going to donate money back to that school. (laughs) It is ridiculously penny wise and pound foolish. Yes. I couldn't agree more because that's the other thing is they will come back at you for more money (laughs) and we want it as a gift. The day you graduate is the day that you get hit up for money. It's also the day that the school stops providing you with any support whatsoever. 
Interesting. Well, well, let's talk about those people that just get out of school. They're now in the workforce. And you mentioned something on another podcast, and I thought it was Mm. really interesting because a lot of companies talk about job hopping, that younger generation is job hopping way more than previous generations. And I think you hit it on the head. So Mm -hmm. do you mind explaining what you said? Hopefully I know which thing you were saying, but in, in my mind, there's really no difference in the job hopping between generations in terms of their desire to do it. What is different now than when I graduated from the University of Manitoba back in 1988, big corporations, corporate mergers, lack of loyalty from companies to candidates, that was absolutely happening, mm-hmm. but not nearly as much as it is now. The reality is that people, whether they're young or old like me, they do not want to move from company to company. They do so because they feel they have to. So if you're a 22-year-old or 25-year-old or a 55-year-old, if you're not provided with the right wages, the right opportunity, if your boss is treating you like crap, you're going to move. Now, if you work for a big company like I did after I graduated, I worked for Honeywell, a Fortune 50 company. If your boss was crappy, there were like a thousand other people within that company that you could go work for. And they made it actually pretty easy. You could move departments without much problem at all. So companies can provide lateral and upward movement opportunities for employees. And when they don't paint a path for those employees, it's like, hey, Shelly, you came in as a marketing coordinator. The next logical step after this is to be a marketing assistant and then a marketing manager and whatever. And this is the career path. And we're going to set you up with mentors and whatever. Those people don't leave. They're lifers. They stay there forever. The people who leave, it's, hey, Shelly, you came in as a marketing coordinator. If anything is ever really awful, come and talk to me. And you do. And they tell you, sorry, there's nothing I can do. And you say, there's something I can do. I can go to Indeed or LinkedIn or some other job board. I can talk Mm -hmm. to a friend and I can leave this crappy company and I can go to another one. So people don't want to leave their healthcare benefits, their pensions or 401ks or whatever. They don't want to be disrupted. If they're treated well and they're paid well, they're going to stay. So I think that the biggest difference is is much more on the employer side than it is on the candidates. Well, I think you nailed it. You got to put in perspective, people coming out of university, college are generally a hundred thousand, at least in debt. I think that's even a low level. So if you're going to go work for an employer that's underpaying you, Mm -hmm. you got to pay your bills. You got to pay everything that you owe. So you're starting a job at $10 an hour. Of course, you're going to jump to that $15, $20 an hour a job. And unfortunately, a lot of organizations right now, the only way to get a generous salary increase is moving companies. Uh, Generally 2%, 4% is what companies are, are giving as far as raises. Yeah. I talked to a customer of ours a couple of weeks ago who had purchased a sort of starter kind of package. Like, let's try you out kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So they were a company of a couple thousand people. Significant, but not break the bank kind of money for a company like that. They were really disappointed that they had posted 13 jobs 
And they didn't think that they were going to hire anybody. They'd received some applications, they interviewed some people, but they were not at all confident they were going to hire people. And so, okay, let's dig into this. So I had to look at their postings and their postings did not say what their compensation was. So that's big red flag number one. If you put your compensation onto your postings, you get about double the response rate. Yeah. Because people, for some reason, they think that they should get paid for their work. What a concept. Imagine. You go over to the company website and the compensation was disclosed there. So it was $12 an hour. You need a four-year degree. And so it's like, where's your problem right there? People are coming to your page. They, you know, they see your ad on College Recruiter. They click over, they go to your ATS, and they see 12 bucks an hour. And they're like, I'm not going to apply to that job. And the talent acquisition person that I talked to, she was completely on the same page. And she's like, I got to tell you, it's way higher than it was before COVID. That was $9 an hour. Like that job needs to be $20 to $25 an hour. Yeah. If you're going to hire anybody, she's like, well, we can't afford to pay that. I get that. It's, it's frustrating to me and it's going to sound callous, but I think over the next couple of years, we're going to see way more small businesses fail than have over the last couple of years, because we're not going to have all the stimulus money. And a lot of businesses were kept afloat by stimulus money. We benefited from it, from several of of the really good programs. But if your fundamental business model is that you have to steal from your employees in order to stay in business, you are not going to stay in business. Amen, brother. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It is the truth. They can afford it, but that means it's going to cut into their profits. I remember saying that to a CEO. I was at an event and he was like, we can't find any tech support people. And I said, really? What do you pay? And he's like 17 or something an hour. And I'm like, okay, why don't you just try increasing the wage and see if that solves the problem? He goes, well, we can't afford it. As he sits there with his $6,000 pair of shoes on. And then when you say goodbye to him after the meeting, he pulled away in his $60,000 Cadillac Escalade. Yeah. I've never heard anybody be so honest about it as what you just said, Stephen. <laughs> and that the fact is that they are stealing from their employees. Yeah. It's wage no, theft. They don't want these people to actually have a living because anyone who's paying that low of a wage and requiring a four-year degree is criminal. People shouldn't apply to them. I applaud you for being plain blank honest about it. I'm going to take us back to the top of the show, talking about the evolution of going from a magazine in 1991, and somebody (laughs) mentioned the word, the internet. Now, where College Recruiter sits right now, and when you look around the HR tech space, what do you think is going to be most disruptive? Oh, okay. That's an interesting question. What sort of keeps me up at night and what gets me excited is that I'm seeing over the last three, four, maybe five years, a huge increase in the number of talent acquisition professionals who are actually using data to drive their decisions. Until then, and I don't know if it was a previous generation, a lack of tools, a lack of experience, comfort, whatever it was. Until then, most of the time, I would see data being used to justify decisions. We decided to use Monster, so I need to go and look and see how many people go to Monster, how many hits Monster gets. Now, if Monster gets you the best results, quantity and quality of applicants, then absolutely run your ads on Monster. But If Monster just has the most traffic and none of those people are applying to your jobs, how does that help you? So part of what we're seeing is a big shift towards data-driven decisions. 
flowing out of that is an area that we're really good at. And so I'm biased towards it, but is programmatic and is performance-based advertising. Two different things, they often overlap, but they don't necessarily overlap. Can you explain the difference for our audience? So programmatic, there are different definitions, but programmatic to me is a computer using uh, rules that, that people give it to decide where to run an ad for how long and at what price. So I want to run this ad until I get 25 applications and it's going to start off on running at 50 different job boards. Just the software does that for you. Within a couple of days, the software can see that XYZ job board has delivered 14 people to your website and no one's applied. So the software stops sending that ad to that job board in a perfect world. On the other hand, another job board, five clicks and two of those people applied. So that job board is going to get more money per click probably, hopefully, maybe in a perfect world that'll happen. So programmatic, rather than having a beauty contest, which job board ran the best ad on last year's Super Bowl, or who's got the sexiest salesperson, instead, the programmatic software says, this is a customer service ad in Calgary. So I'm going to send it to Canadian job boards in Alberta, job boards in Calgary, job boards that are customer service focused. And whoever delivers the best candidates fastest gets the money. Performance-based advertising is usually cost per click. Sometimes, and indeed is shifting to this, is cost per application. And sometimes, even a step further than that, is cost per quality application or qualified application. And that's usually the candidate has to answer a few basic questions. Do you have a pulse? Are you currently incarcerated? Things like that. Which, by the way... Some of the best candidates out there are currently incarcerated, but that's a different story for a different day. But oh, the, I got to hear that one. <laughs> yeah. So performance-based advertising, virtually all of our customers buy virtually all of their advertising with us on a performance basis, mostly cost per click. Typical cost per click for an entry-level job is 50 cents to a buck. But if you're trying to hire like a nurse anesthetist into Churchill, Manitoba, Good luck with that. How many of those people are there in Churchill who might actually be looking for a job or who are looking to move to Churchill? There just aren't any. So don't bother running those ads. But if you're looking for a customer service or salesperson or auto mechanic, what yeah. the vast majority of hourly kinds of jobs are, programmatic cost per click, completely kick ass. I agree. And you know what? I'm glad I'm no longer in sales on the job board side because I sold everything because I was damn sexy. And now with programmatic, <laughs> that would just take everything away. With You're me. out of work. It, yeah, it'd be it's, very it's, challenging. Good thing it, you pivoted. It's a, it's a good thing that, that the podcast is just audio only because otherwise <laughs> nobody would be able to get past the face. And, exactly. And it, it would just uh, enamored. <laughs> enamored is the word that comes to mind. Yeah. It, it'd be very <laughs> tough. Stephen, oh it goodness. was a pleasure having you on. For yes. our audience, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, sure. No sweat. So feel free to drop me an email, Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N, at collegerecruiter.com. If you don't know how to spell recruiter, you're listening to the wrong show. Hit me up on LinkedIn. If you want to be bored as hell, Twitter, at Stephen Rothberg. Great. You have a great blog on College Recruiter. So for listeners, it covers not only college recruitment, but overall the space. So keep it going. Stephen, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Serge. Thanks. Thank you, Shelly. Thank you. We'll talk again. 
How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.